This is where we can get into some disagreements. Through the centuries, Christians who have held that the scriptures are the inerrant, true word of God have differed, have disagreed over the interpretation of the six days of creation. There are some really, really smart people, really, really godly people, who think that the six days of creation are 24-hour solar days. John Calvin. I dare say you wouldn't want to debate him on anything theological. Louis Burkhoff. There are others who think that the six days of Genesis did not limit God's creating activity to 144 hours of six days. Augustine, Aquinas, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, Donald Barnhouse, Francis Schaeffer, to name a few. You can put Kenny Lynch in that category too. Here's the fact. The fact is this. Godly, Bible-loving people who have given their lives to God's Word have disagreed over the opening verses of the Bible. What they have not disagreed over is that this is the total, utter truth of God's Word and that Genesis is factual and historical. So do you see what I'm saying? Now, that's really important. You can believe that this is God's word, that the Genesis account is factual and historical, and have disagreements over your view of the six days of creation. There are at least six views at least six. This is for the note takers. I'll just rattle through these real quick. The one view of creation is the 24-hour solar day that God created. The six days were 144 hours. Okay? There's the punctuated activity view. The theologians think through these things. That's 24-hour days separated by indefinite periods. There's the gap view. The gap view is that there's a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I'm not going to explain all these to you. If you want to understand them, you've got to go home and do some work. There's the day-age view that each of the days correspond to geological ages. There's the framework view. You guys are listening good. I like eye contact. You're... That the days are a literary structure device to show the truth of creation 
but not consecutive days. And then finally, there's the analogical day view, which describes these as God's work days. They can't all be correct. And we should seek to understand God's word in a way that we would seek the correct view. But I'm telling you that there's disagreement over these things. I agree with Brian Chappell. He's the president of Covenant Sem Seminary. He, he said this. He was talking about our, our views of creation. And he said, you know, many people disagree on their views of how things began. And it's equally true that many people disagree on their views of how things will come to an end. And it's true. Some of you are pre-millennial. Some of you are amillennial. Some of you are post-millennial. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'm saying you can be a Christian and not know, have a deep understanding of end times. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study those things. What we should recognize, though, is that people can differ over timing issues and still believe the Bible is true. And we should accept differences, disagreements, without accusing one another of being unorthodox. What's the point I'm making here? We should not make someone's view of creation a test for their orthodoxy. We should not judge someone who has a different view of creation than us as not being a Christian. We should not get red-faced and angry when we're sitting and discussing these things with someone who has a different perspective than us. We should be humble and cautious in our judgments. Does that resonate with anybody? Because that's gospel culture. Gospel culture is we should be cautious and humble in our judgments. We should be sticks and stones, remember? We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. This is what the word of the Lord says. So what are we going to do today? We're going to look at this section of Scripture, and we're going to look at Genesis 1, well, the Scriptures that were read. We'll look at verses 1 through 23. We'll camp out primarily in the first 13 verses. We're going to look at how God formed the earth in creation, and we're going to make three observations. Here they are. We're going to observe some carefully composed words. We're going to observe the first three days of the forming of creation. And then lastly and importantly, we're going to make some connections to Christ. Good? Let's start off with carefully composed words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. What Temi read this morning is an incredible arrangement. This section of scripture we've talked about, Genesis, will give you a sense of God. Didn't it give you a sense of God? The symmetry, the arrangement, the careful literary crafting of this section of scripture by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. So when we look at carefully composed words, I just want, to, I want you to see some things. I want you to see an arrangement, an arrangement that is taking place here. And the arrangement that's taking place is that creation account is arranged in such a way that we see the first three days God forming the earth, and in the following three days, days four, five, and six, God filling the earth. Today I want to focus on God's forming of the earth, and next, not next week, Paul Tripp will be here next week, and the week after we'll look at God's filling of the earth. Two sets of days, day one through, days one through three and days four through six, that are solutions to the observation that Moses made when he said the earth was without form and void. It was without form and it was empty. And so God dealt with this, God deals with this. In the first three days, he deals with the formlessness by forming and creation. And then in the next three days of creation, God deals with its void, its emptiness, by filling it. Moses is going to great effort to help you to see God in this, to see God's activity. There's a lot of structure and symmetry, things that I'm sure you might not see if you didn't spend time studying it. But let me show you some things that will cause you to hopefully see God, but also marvel over the work that Moses has done, inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's structure and symmetry to these carefully composed words. There's this forming and there's filling. Gabe, put that slide, or Jeff, put that slide back up. So, so what I want you to see is that day four corresponds to day one. So we've got the light, and then he fills the heavens with the luminaries, day four. Day five, the birds and the fish, corresponds to the forming that he did in day two. And finally, day six, the animals and man, plants for food, corresponds to the forming of day three, the land. We need to be able to see these things. I also want you to see that at the end, and you probably caught this, at the end of every day, what does God do? He pauses and tells us something. What does the writer tell us? It's good. He, 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 he creates, he forms it. That's good. A double repetition in verse 3 and in or day three and day six, a double repetition of God saying and a double repetition of and it was good. 
There's this symmetry and structure that holds together that Moses is highlighting. This is God's activity in creation and everything that God does is good. Amen? This is amazing. Carefully composed words as a category of observation. There's this theme of perfection that runs through here. And this, I, I learned some of these things from studying a Hebrew professor, scholar of these things. There's this system of numerical harmony. Now listen, you don't have to go get a degree in Hebrew to, to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to do that. But if you want to dive into things, if you dive into some, uh, some of the theological works that have been done and, and good, sound theology, it will help you in your worship of Christ and God. So this Hebrew professor, he, he shows that through the Genesis creation account, there's this system of numerical harmony. And the word seven, the number seven, means a lot in Hebrew structure. It's the number for perfection. So I've already told you, God is the main character in the first chapter of the Bible. The, the word God, the Hebrew word Elohim, used 35 times. 35 times. God's the one doing the work here. This, is, this section is about God. It's intended to give us a great sense of God as creator overall, sovereign ruler overall. But he uses the word, Moses uses it intentionally 35 times, 35 times being a, a multiple. Is that the right word, mathematicians? A multiple of seven. Seven times five gives you 35. You know I'm looking out uh, there to check my multiplication uh, education. The words heaven and earth. He started in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The words heavens, earth, God, those are the three nouns of this, of this uh, section repeated in multiples of seven. God, 35 times, heaven and earth, both used each 21 times each. Moses did that intentionally. He's wanting you to see that this is perfection. This is, the, this is numerical harmony. Seven times three, heaven. Seven times three, earth. God, seven times five, 35. Check this out too. Just write this down and go home and look at it later. And let me just say this. Um, God's word wasn't written as like a website for those who just happen to be interested in this kind of thing. God's word is intending to make a claim on everybody that's seated here. I'm just geeking out on some of this stuff, okay? And it'll help you to love God, I hope. So, but look at this. Hebrew. Verse 1 in the Hebrew. Actually, you can't check it. Only if you know Hebrew can you check me on this. Verse 1, in the Hebrew, seven words. You see, he's, he's, Moses is doing this intentionally. That's hard. He, that, it's hard to craft something like this. Verse 2, in the Hebrew, 14 words. Not 15, not 13, 14. He's, he's using this numerical seven to show perfection and harmony. In the seventh paragraph, in the Hebrew, seventh paragraph, which is his 
depiction of the seventh day, he uses three sentences, seven words, on the seventh day. And in the middle of the section, he has the language on the seventh day. It's a remarkable work of, of literary skill. So we're looking at these carefully composed words that are intended to give us a, an idea of order and symmetry and perfection. And I, I don't want to make a big deal out of this now because I've already done it in one of the previous sermons. But the readers, the original readers of Genesis would have understood this also to be carefully composed history. This one, They didn't receive this as a myth. They didn't receive it as just poetry or metaphor. It was, it was history, not meant to be an exhaustive account of history. It's only one page long. God was painting a picture for us all. I read, I read something that I really wanted to read to you. It was going to be long, so I decided not to read it to you. Maybe we'll get it into the weekly email. But I read something from a scientist, that, the, a chemistry professor, on why this is not a scientific account, why it's God's account, and why if it was a scientific account, you would never understand it. And God wants you to understand it. He wants his word to be understood. That's all I'll say there. That's my first observation, carefully composed words. Now, second observation, the first three days of forming creation. We know, I just read here, that the earth was without form and void. It was formless. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And then God takes out his tool and begins to create one tool. He used one tool to create all that there is. He created everything out of nothing with one tool. What tool was it? His word. His word. He thought it, spoke it, and there it is. We could end right there. Glory to God. And Moses goes to great lengths to tell us over and over, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Guess what happens, people, when God says something? It happens. Guess what happened when I say something? I wish it would happen. I've been parenting too long to know that Aunt Kenny said doesn't mean the same thing as when God said. God thought it. 
He willed it. He spoke it into existence. Let me just give you a few things to marvel over. Everything. Everything. This is why I tell you, you got to get outside more. This is, you, you Gen Zers. And what's the next one? What's after Gen Z? Alpha, Gen Alpha. You got to get outside more. Because if you get outside, you'll, you'll experience some of the awe of creation, which points us to the awe of the God who created it, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So just listen to this. Let me try to get this right. You know your body's made up of cells, right? You know that. Do you have any idea how many? You don't have any idea. <laughs> Some scientists would say 10 trillion cells, but, it's, but that's on, many scientists believe that's on the low end. 10 trillion cells. And you know, go back to your basic little uh, biology. You know that every cell has right at the center of it the brain, right? What do we call that? The nucleus. And inside the nucleus is, the D, is your DNA. And in every strand, okay, every strand of your DNA, if you could take it out, you got your cell and you pull the nucleus out and then you pull the DNA out. You take the DNA out and you stretch it. Do you know how long it would be? Six feet. So the DNA of every microscopic nucleus is packed in there six feet. So if you take six feet times 10 trillion, you get 60 trillion feet of DNA inside each of you, which is around 10 billion miles. So that all of your DNA, all the DNA in, e in all of your cells is twice the diameter of the solar system. <sighs> birds. I've been thinking about birds a lot. <laughs> I sit on my deck. And sometimes I play music, but in, in the summer I just turn the music off. The sound of the birds, if you will listen, is deafening. It's deafening. I'm convinced. I've gone to other places, other places in the world. And I just take, when you go to another place in the world, you just sit there and you take it in because it's all new. It's all novel. It's, but I've listened to these birds for 50 some years now. I'm kind of tired of them, right? I've heard them. I know the sounds they make. It's normal to me. But if I stop and listen, I, we did this. Amy and I were sitting there one night and we tried to pick out all the different bird sounds that were on our deck. And we just got so confused. But we've got a mockingbird that I don't even know how this works either. We, we lived there for 10 years, and I've got a mockingbird on the left of my deck singing his or her heart out for the last 10 years. I don't know how mockingbirds live, long they live. I wouldn't think they live 10 years. But there's always a mockingbird that builds a nest right there. So I don't know if it's a generational thing or what's going on there. But, but they, mockingbirds are an amazing creature because they mock or mimic the sounds of other birds. Listen to it one time, guys. Listen to a mockingbird. It'll, it'll make you schizophrenic. <laughs> it's amazing how this one bird can mimic all the sounds of the other birds. That's just a mockingbird. 
And that's just your DNA. We could go on and on and on marveling over God's majesty in forming and creating all that there is. Amen? It's, he does it all with such ease. C.S. Lewis says, a mere utterance. Shall I keep going? Let me read you something, because C.S. Lewis was on to this stuff. I, I, I'm going to give you two examples. One, well, I'll give you one visual and one written of the beauty of creation. Here's my visual recommendation. Um, Tree of Life. <laughs> Seven-minute section. <laughs> Nobody does this. Terrence Mollick. He does a, a, a visual with no words for seven minutes in a movie. Stuff won't sell, I'm telling you. But you go watch his seven-minute take on creation. It'll blow you away. You might not like the movie. I, for one, and I know I have friends that do <laughs> like the tree of life. So that's my visual example. Go, go watch at least that, those seven minutes. I mean, I think you should watch it all, but... Hey, listen to this. C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis shows God's ease and his joy in creation in the Narnia where he has Aslan creating the universe. Just listen to some of this. Aslan's mouth is wide open in song. And as he sings, the color green begins to form around his feet and spreads out in a pool. Then flowers and heather appear on the hillside and move out before him. As the tempo of the music picks up, showers of birds fly out of a tree and butterflies begin to flit about. Then comes great celebration as the song breaks in, in, into an even wilder song. If you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should do that. Give you a sense of God. Day one. What do we see? We see God creating with his tool, his word. And what do we see? We see light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Now notice this. The first three days of light, the source of light is not the sun. We get that on day four. So we should ask, where's the light coming from? What's the light? Bible, the Bible begins with light, but no sun, and it ends with light and no sun. Revelation 22.5. Let me just read this to you. Sometimes you just got to hear it. The word of the Lord. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let me see if I'm reading the right verse here. I got the wrong verse. It is a good one. 
22.4. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was looking at 21. Jairus covering me up. 22 verse 4, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So I want you to see that this light that he created, the source of the light is good. And after creating the light, he he uses his benediction, which he uses seven times. God is admiring his creation. Day two, we get to verse six through eight. Day two, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And, and God made the expanse. We just, we just read this. The expanse, it's like this horizontal area with two layers. the upper and lower regions of water. In the visible expanse, he refers to as sky. The waters of the sea below, the clouds, and the water above. It's the blue that we see. It's the sky's atmosphere. After two days, God has created day and night, light, and sky. And all of that is supposed to show us that God rules and reigns in dominion over all. Day three, let me keep moving. We got the first two days were increasing in form and order to creation of the, of the earth. Earth is warmed by light, it's robed in blue clouds over the sparkling sea, and now God's going to speak twice. The first speech is captured in verses 9 through 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In this first speech of day three, he's completed the forming of the earth. Then he gives another speech in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This second speech captures a theme of fullness. God is filling. The earth now is ready for life. The forms are all in place. Chaos has been ordered by the power of his word, and here is the history of the world in the first three days. All right, that's all we're going to observe of that today. You guys still with me? You're getting glazed over. We got observations of carefully composed words. We've got the observation of the first three days of forming creation. Let's connect it to Jesus. All right, let's connect it to Christ. I'll do this in three ways. Light, creator, and order. Light. The Bible begins and ends 
describing this untainted, perfect world filled with light but no sun. And it shows God as the source. So it's fitting that Jesus would identify himself as the light of the world. Your Bible's fitting together. In John 8, 12, let me make sure I got this one right, Jairus. You can stand down there and check me. John 8, 12. Let me just read this to you. We read this when we went through our study of John. But this is where Jesus says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Genesis, an understanding of Genesis, brings meaning to that passage when he says that I am the light of the world. Now, check this out. When Jesus made that speech, when he preached that, he did it during the illumination. It was a festival of the Jews, the illumination of the temple. So he's standing in the temple with all of these torches lit that brought illumination to the temple over a period of days. So he's standing underneath these massive torches that burned every night in the seminary, in the ceremony. And, and it was a reference to what the Jews and the religious leaders were attempting to do was to show the Shekinah glory of God, which is a reference to God leading them for 40 years in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and, and fire by night. You, you remember the story. This is what's being referenced there. So on that day, when they're commemorating this illumination of the temple, Jesus stands there and says, guess what? I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself as the Genesis 1 giver of light, and he's identifying himself as the one in Revelation who says that when the sun has passed away, there'll be no more need of light because it will all be lit by the presence of Jesus, the light of the world. What do we get out of this? This is the unfailing promise that Jesus speaks and we receive his light. Jesus speaks and we receive his light. Jesus can bring light into your darkness. If you've experienced that, you smile. If you experience that, you say, praise the Lord. He, 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 he spoke into the darkness and he brought himself. He brought the light of himself. That's what salvation is. It's that first initial experience of God speaking light into your darkness. But just as Gabe shared, and we're talking about gospel culture, it's an experience that we need over and over and over again, where Jesus brings a Genesis into my life. Connection to light. 
I'm going to skip over a point that I'm going to make, but I'm going to give you some verses that you can look up, okay? Connection to Jesus is that Jesus is creator. The light is present when creation is spoken into existence. Jesus was there creating. This is why John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Colossians 1, 16, Revelation 4, 11, All of these speak to the creative power of Jesus. Let me just read one. But look these up and see how the New Testament writers speak of Jesus as a powerful creator. Revelation 4, the description of the throne of heaven. In that description, there are 24 elders who fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For, reason why, you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Do you see your Bible fitting together? This should give us a great sense of who Jesus is. Jesus brings order out of the chaos of our lives. The whole creation account is a story of God bringing order to formlessness, to voidness, to chaos. He brings order out of dark chaos into our lives. Listen, if your life is dark right now, if your life is desolate right now, if your life feels out of control right now, if you feel like there's no light in your life, if you feel like you have no hope, let me tell you about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that brings light into darkness. He brings order to chaos. When things are out of control, he brings control. I'm looking in the faces of people who have repented of their sins and found Jesus to be one who took their chaos and began to bring order out of it. I look out here and I see marriages that have been restored by the grace of God that should have been a statistic, that should have been destroyed if it weren't for the light of the world, if it weren't for the one who steps into chaos and brings his forgiveness through his cross where he shed his blood and died for you and me. He brings order into our chaos. Hasn't he done that? That's what a gospel culture is, church. That's what a gospel culture is. It's the remembrance that you, apart from Christ, are a chaotic mess of darkness. But because of Jesus, he brings light and order to our chaos. We should praise him, church. The same power that flung the stars into the sky, that formed those DNA strands, he will save you. If you come to him, he'll turn your night into a day with a word. Some of you need to, need to hear that. You know, I'm not, and I'm talking about people who are trying to follow Jesus. 
Have you entered into a dark time? Do you feel like a cloud is hanging over you? You need to remember, the Holy Spirit's reminding you this morning that Jesus brings light into your darkness and he's going to see you through this. He turns our sadness into joy with a word. He will reorder your broken life with a word. He will transform your chaos with a word. Will you look to him? Where else would you look? Friends from Chester County? I've been spending a lot of time in Delaware County. In an area where there's not much. And sometimes I get worried about you. And me. Because it's, and if Jesus said this, it's hard for rich people like us to see our need for Jesus. I think about this. Like I, I feel like I could have gone over to the barbecue across the street from my parents' house in Tinicum where people's lives are a mess. I mean, they're doing a barbecue and they're eating on top. They didn't even move the trash cans. They're using them as tables. And I feel like I could walk over there and very easily say, what's going on? And they'd probably hand me, you want a hot dog? They had a little extra money on Friday night. They got a few more hot dogs, a few hamburgers, and they're throwing a barbecue. And I could walk over there, they'd hand me a hot dog, and then I'd say, uh, yeah, my, this is my parents' house. Um, my dad's dying. That's why I'm over here a lot. I'm a pastor. You know what that is? And, it, and, and then I'd say, you know what, I'm going to preach tomorrow. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. You guys know Jesus. And I feel like I could get into a conversation with them, and they'd be like, yeah, all right, what are, you know, tell us. Tell, try to convince them that they need something other than what they got. But I do that in the barbecues around here. People don't need Jesus. They got money. They got three or four cars in the garage. They got $500,000 houses. They don't need Jesus. You do need Jesus. Because every single one of us, if we're honest, has a darkness and a chaos in our lives that only Jesus, the light of the world, the one that brings order out of chaos, can fix. That's gospel culture. He came. He died for our sins. He's the one true light. He's the great Savior of the world, Jesus can bring a genesis to your life. This is our God. He gives form. He sheds light. He reorders life. And he'll do that for you. Amen.